1: Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we start the show, we've got some shouts out to new Patreon members. Thank you so much to Sukanya, Kara, and the mysterious Nothing Now for joining our Patreon. Your monthly contributions really help to keep the show going. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, And this week for everyone, not just those three, um, we're going to be spanning many different times and places to talk about perceptions of the human body and how different body shapes, particularly fatness have been seen over human history. I just want to up top say um, that some of these may feel like some of this content may feel like uncomfortable to hear. um, Especially if you are a person of size I am we're gonna like put out some like content notes for there's some like actually like quite awful stories um that will and we will give you um advance notice but I just want I just want everyone to to know that like it's okay to feel like a little bit of discomfort with some topics if they are like outside your experience especially outside your personal lived experience um and that's fine because that's That's how we learn Right, exactly. And so first, let's consider some science and some things that you may think you have learned. <laughs> <laughs> so often medical professionals, um, Western medical professionals of this year age, um, use the BMI or the body mass index as a measure of a person's size. It's a ratio of body fat to height and weight. But the BMI as you may guess by me bringing it up, isn't as objective or reliable a measure as one might think, especially considering it is a huge part of the medical establishment in, yeah. in our country, in the U.S. at mm-hmm. least. And so um, I'm going to pull from um, an article on Medium that was that's published in their Elemental magazine. That's like sciency, uh, And it's brought to you by the folks at Your Fat Friend.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: the title of this is The Bizarre and Racist History of the BMI. The body mass index was invented nearly 200 years ago. Its creator, Adolphe Quetelet, was an academic whose studies included astronomy, mathematics, statistics, and sociology. Because you could do that 200 years ago. All of them. All of them at once. (laughs) Notably... Quetelet was not a physician, nor did he study medicine. He was best known for his sociological work aimed at identifying the characteristics of l'homme moyen, the average man, whom, to Quetelet, represented a social ideal. So you could see the problem in the setup right there. Um, here comes another problem Quetelet was Belgian. That's not works, the problem. Well, get to the, the end of the sentence. No, I know. I just in west (laughs) in Western in Western Europe during the early 19th century, a boom time for racist science. Yeah, that's the problem. I just didn't want (laughs) to offend any of our Belgian listeners saying that being Belgian was the problem. If we have any early 19th century Belgians speaking on matters of like human nature in our audience, perhaps they should listen a little bit more closely to our show. Yes. Contemporary Belgians. I think you might be all right. Quetelet is credited with co-founding the school of positivist criminology, quote, which asserted the dangerousness of the criminal to be the only measure of the extent to which he was punishable. End quote. Mm. That positivist school laid the groundwork for criminologists like César Lombroso, who believed that people of color were a separate species. Homo criminalis, Lombroso argued, were savages by birth, identified by physical characteristics that he claimed linked them to primates. Yikes. Eww. Yeah. 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 That's, Eww. that's not great. And actually that like the Homo criminalis is something yep. that is echoed in contemporary studies and like research and facial recognition. And like, yeah, the, there have been a couple of recent
1: ones that pop up that, show like scan your face and show the likelihood that you're a criminal.
2: Yeah. And there's, so there's um like research that's done on that by people, like by scientists who may not have any sort of like racist motivations in what they're doing, but that work gets like bought very quickly co-opted, <laughs> co-opted by like, agencies and um, apps and things that like it, goes wrong. So don't think we're too far from that. I just wanted to include that because it's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Back to Quetelet. Quetelet believed that the mathematical mean of a population was its ideal and his desire to prove it resulted in the invention of the BMI, a way of quantifying L'Homme Moyenne's weight. Initially called Quetelet's index, Quetelet de- derived the formula based solely on the size and measurements of French and Scottish participants. That is, the index was devised exclusively by and for white Western Europeans. By the turn of the next century, Quetelet's l'homme moyen would be used as a measurement of fitness to parent and as a scientific justification for eugenics, the systemic sterilization of disabled people, people with autism, immigrants poor people, and people of color. While Quetelet's work was used to justify scientific racism for decades to come, he was clear about one aspect of the BMI. It was never intended as a measure of individual body fat, build, or health. For its inventor, the BMI was a way of measuring populations, not individuals, and it was designed for the purposes of statistics, not individual health. And there's where we have a problem, because that seems to be today the way that
1: medical science, at least as it's marketed to communities now, often like, for example, a fitness app, if you download a fitness app, often in order to sort of calibrate your needs from that app, it'll ask you for your BMI, or it will generate your BMI, yeah. it'll say, what's your height? What's your weight? Um, and that is deeply flawed. I mean, not just because it's not what Ketelet intended, but, you know, for example, think of someone who is, well, okay, let's, so let's take me, for example. I'm average height. I'm five foot four and, um, I weigh around 170. And so my height and weight would give me a certain BMI value. Now let's say that there's someone who is slightly taller and is an athlete. Slightly taller than me and an athlete and weighs just about as much as I do, but it's weight from muscle, not from combined muscle and fat, which that's me. And so they might share a very similar BMI to me, and yet their body makeup could be totally different. And so the BMI isn't necessarily a measure of health, but is often used as exactly that. So it's and, it's and, not accounting for differences in physiology. It's not accounting for differences in lifestyle, in your genetic makeup that that determines how your body fat is distributed. Yeah, like it's
2: not. It's not valid. And but unfortunately, it has huge ramifications for individual health because it's used by uh, insurance companies um, to for in order for something to be covered if you need surgery if you need some kind of, of, of what right? w- what, uh, what would be considered an elective surgery, but actually is like quite important to your ability to like thrive and survive, like sort of uh, psychologically. Right. So
1: if your BMI is too high, that counts as a pre-existing condition, regardless yeah. of any number of physiological reasons why your BMI value might be what it is.
2: Yeah. And that's something that affects um, that might, that, our listeners outside the U.S. in many many countries might not have to think about uh, because of the structure of their healthcare system mm-hmm. and like who has access to healthcare. Um, but yeah, it's something that has like huge, like huge implications, and it's something that is is regularly brought into sort of like physical exams and things, and it's used as a um, as an explanation for some symptoms. Um, that a patient might be expressing that, uh, rather than looking deeper, may or may not be related. Exactly. Yeah. Rather than like examining more closely or doing more tests or listening to a patient, um, what they do instead is say, "Well, given your BMI, it seems that what you need to do before anything else is lose weight." Um. So that's yeah. It's not always it's not always the right approach. No, <laughs> it's. And if we look at the how why it was created and how it was created and by whom and for whom it was created it yeah, um, makes sense. It makes sense because we're we're asking it to do something that that no one wanted it no one meant for it to. Right. So, when we consider the whole arc of human history, much of it is characterized by periods of chronic food shortage and malnutrition. As hunter gatherers, please see episode 94. Uh, Humans are tied to seasonal availability of resources. During the seasons when animal and plant foods are more abundant, it might be easier to ward off starvation, but you're still vulnerable to unexpected shortages or any other changes in food availability. So quoting from (sighs) a (laughs) a history of obesity or how what was good became ugly and then bad, which... I see what you were trying to do there national kidney foundation but not great and also it's it's interesting to me um that the the words ugly and bad well the words ugly and bad and i mean it's a reference to the good the bad and the ugly just in case also that what's more interesting to me is that's not that's not interesting to me (laughs) making just in case no just in case listeners didn't pick up on what they were trying to do there (laughs) Is the term obesity and looking Mm -hmm. like obesity being a like clinical term? It's sort of like it's a diagnosis. It's yeah, it's like medicalizing fatness, Mm -hmm. and obesity is determined is informed by the BMI, right? Because you're you're underweight, you're normal, you're overweight, or you're obese, right? And that's sort of the spectrum. So I. I always bristle at the sight of the word obesity because it's, to me, it like represents somebody standing behind sort of a like the veil of science. Right. And
1: that's that's what's happening here. I mean, it's a it's a clinical foundation. And so they are using
2: that language. Yeah. And so the National Kidney Foundation says Obesity as a chronic disease with well-defined pathologic consequences is less than a century old. The scarcity of food throughout most of history had led to connotations that being fat was good and that corpulence and increased flesh were desirable as reflected in the arts, literature, and medical opinion of the times. Only in the latter half of the 19th century did being fat begin to be stigmatized for aesthetic reasons. And in the 20th century, its association with increased mortality was recognized. Don't worry. We're going to go on to show that that is not true. Yeah. And also the National Kidney Foundation is taking a very like white Western view of these things because even today there are different. um, Like there are socially socially constructed ideas of like the normal the normal body. Um, Yeah. And and so that's so even that is like. eh. So (laughs) what is fat? Body fat or adipose tissue stores energy in our bodies as lipids. We actually have two types of adipose tissue. White adipose tissue. White. Which which stores energy and brown adipose tissue. Fat. Which stores (laughs) body heat. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have those acronyms. Adipose tissue is actually an important endocrine organ, producing some of the body's key hormones. Typically, humans store fat underneath our skin. Well, I mean, There's there's two places where we store fat deposits. One is the subcutaneous layer,
1: which is under the skin. And then there are sort of pockets that surround our organs where fat can also be deposited. Which is still
2: under your skin. Which is why I stopped there, where I'm just like, where else? Because it's like under the skin or on top of the skin? No, it's between the skin and the muscle. (laughs) It is immediately under the skin. Keeping your fat around. I don't know. Um, I have a shed out back. It's my fat shed. Um, So why the body stores fat. Uh, And then the evolutionary history of humankind. Body fat seems to have served nature's purpose by outfitting the species with a built-in mechanism for storing its own food reserves. Built-in shed. Yeah. Keep it. I keep, keep mine out back. Um, during prehistoric times, when the burden of disease was that of pestilence and famine. Jeez. <laughs> Natural selection rewarded the thrifty genotypes of of those who could store the greatest amount of fat from the least amount of the then erratically available foods and to release it as frugally as possible over the long run. This ability to store surplus fat from the least possible possible amount of food intake may have made the difference between life and death, not only for the individual, but also, more importantly, for the species. Those who could store fat easily had an evolutionary advantage in the harsh environment of early hunters and gatherers. And just a note here,
1: this isn't, you know, it's a, it's a very, very broad statement. Hunters and gatherers lived in many and still live in many, many different ecosystems. And, you know, some are more abundant in resources than others. So this isn't describing the experience and necessarily the, the genetic kind of pathways of every hunter gatherer group. But it seems to be common across, again, European. Yeah, like groups.
2: I don't I don't want to put words in the mouth of the National Kidney Foundation, but this this to me kind of evokes that sort of like linear interpretation of like human development. And so, like, yeah. you know, we were like we were monkeys and then we stopped being monkeys and then we became no, hunter gatherers. You, know we, and you like, know we were never monkeys, <laughs> Amber. No, but, um, I agree. It's, this is, this is, um, kind of a myopic view of, yeah, and of it's, evolution and it, yeah, it's one that, that thinks that like, well, now that we're not hunter gatherers anymore, that, now we're like, this, this, yes, this feels, this, this like smacks of paleo diet to me. Uh, there, yeah, and, There's like, going to be some more of that later okay. on. Don't worry. By the time the Old Testament, Talmud, and New Testament had been written, humans had largely settled down into an agricultural lifestyle. As anyone who has become more sedentary during quarantine might tell you, going from a highly mobile lifestyle and diverse diet to staying in one place and focusing on a few staple crops Pizza. Like nachos. Yeah, that's John's what pineapple. I had for dinner last night. Yeah, that's what I had for dinner last night. What? Wow! Um, it often causes increased weight gain in a population. And... These religious writings show that obesity was no longer a sign of success or survival, but one of indolence, gluttony, or ill health, according to their authors. Um, and yeah. also just like, just these are scriptures taken out of, con- like, out of greater context. So there could be other stuff going on. I don't actually know for certain. <laughs> I just... Yeah, so, the but the one of the
1: ways that um, this source, clinicaloncology.com, shows... The change in views is that it looks at Old Testament Talmud and New Testament sources for hot takes about basically it's like a keyword search for words having to do with fatness.
2: Yeah. Um, And so we got in Judges 317, which like you may you may think that judges is like a noun, but it's actually a verb, as you'll see. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> Judges, indeed. Emphasis mine. Um, in Proverbs 2320, um, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. The, the author of Proverbs, a bit of a straight edge vegan, it seems. Mm. Um, and then Further in Proverbs, a companion of gluttons shames his father, um, which the first time I read that, I thought that like the collective noun for gluttons was is a, a companion. companion of gluttons. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's easier to be a glutton when you're with friends. Um, and then in the New Testament, in the letter to the Philippians, not the the residents of my hometown, um, <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> 319, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and thy glory is their shame with mine set on earthly things, which I feel like, um, is a bit of an indictment of like some contemporary to Paul. You mean like asceticism and stuff? Yeah. And, and oh gosh, I can't remember like stuff that I, that I remember reading, but I clearly don't remember well enough. Um, it back in Greek and just like ideas around hedonism in like the, the real, like the original sense. Yeah. There are some takes and there also is um, on the part of clinical oncology, if nothing else, uh, there is an overlap in um, uh, fatness and like uh, lax morals and sort of like the, like, so Fat equals gluttonous, which is not necessarily the case. Um, and so I, that says, that says, says something. To, con- to pick up where you left off, the biblical perspective of
1: gluttony was essentially canonized by the 4th century monk Evagrius Ponticus in his depiction of gluttony as one of the seven deadly sins. Thus, Western biblical tradition presents obesity as undesirable and shameful. A medical perspective of obesity, and I'm using that word deliberately, deliberately as in a diagnosis, yeah. has been present for longer than you might think, along with observations of some correlated, but maybe not caused, health complications like diabetes and kidney disease. In an anecdote in the Talmud, we find a tale of what may have been the first bariatric operation, which is making changes to a patient's weight by fiddling with their digestive system surgically. So whether it's altering the size of their stomach or um, removing fat deposits, things like that. The second century rabbi Eliezer, who was morbidly obese underwent a- an operation after being given a soporific potion in which his abdomen or abdominal wall was opened and numerous quote baskets of fat were removed end quote. Woof. The recognition that obesity was an impediment to good health and longevity Clinical oncology's words, not mine, Hmm. is documented in the writings of ancient Greece, Egypt, and India. Hippocrates, the 4th to 5th century BCE Greek physician, wrote, quote, All disease begins in the gut. Everything in excess is opposed by nature. If we could give every individual the right amount of nourishment and exercise, not too little and not too much, we would have found the safest way to health. Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. It is very injurious to health to take in more food than the Constitution will bear when, at the same time, one uses no exercise to carry off this excess. The most famous doctors cure by changing the diet and lifestyle of their patients. And so that's from the Hippocratic Corpus, which which is his writings, which like to some extent. Yeah, sure.
2: Like all disease begins in the gut is like some full on like YouTube like Dr. YouTube. Although there is
1: some really cool evidence about how your gut microflora affects your brain and things like that. Like, it's just amazing. Oh, yeah.
2: No, don't get me wrong. I definitely believe in science. And, like, I, like, <laughs> and, like, there is really interesting research about, like, there being like means for treatment and and like like for for different things and so the relationship between your tummy and your brain or your tummy and other parts of you but well also your 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 whole gut yeah that's in the tummy do I need to show (laughs) you where the tummy is (laughs) I know where the tummy (laughs) is thank you Okay.
1: The relationship of other diseases to obesity is also ancient and can be dated back to Egypt in the 15th century BCE. The Ebers Papyrus, which we've mentioned mm-hmm. before, it's a, it's a um field medical text basically. It's um like a if you're a a, a military medic in ancient Egypt, the Ebers Papyrus was written for you. Uh, so it mentions treatments for excess urination probably secondary to diabetes. Hindu physicians Charaka, Sushruta, and Vagvata noted in the 2nd century BCE that black ants were attracted to honey urine, as in when you are diabetic um, and it's not treated, you are urinating a lot of your body's sugar because it's not regulated through insulin. And so uh, your urine can be sweet. Hippocrates stated, quote, corpulency is not only a disease, but the harbinger of others. Those who are constitutionally very fat are more apt to die quickly than those who are thin. End quote. Aristeus, the Cappadocian.
2: <laughs>
1: Isn't he the bad guy in Ghostbusters 2? <laughs> oh, no, that's, that's Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> Silly me. Uh, A secondary, no, a second century contemporary of Galen was the first to use the term diabetes to describe an affliction of melting down of the flesh and limbs into urine, portraying the symptoms and signs of this disease in the clearest terms. Because you, you often, uh, lose a lot of weight. And if you're, if you are diabetic and it's not treated. Yeah. Um, so here we're going to pause for an ad and then we'll be back with more perspectives from history and prehistory
0: it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturomedia.com then please do culturo is spelled k-u-l-t-u-r-o and it's where we promote all of our live events we've got one coming up in november check it out over at culturo when it gets posted if it's already happened and you're hearing this then as a member you can go to your member pages and see the event recording our live events are always free but you have to show up during the event to see it so that's com for all our live events and more. CulturalMedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, Membership in our Slack team, so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra, and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
1: All right, we're back. And we've mentioned before in our episode on prehistoric lady statues, that the link between storing fat and survival may have been one of the reasons for creating those curvy figurines. So here are two studies that, well, one of them takes an actual quantitative approach, uh, sort of, uh, but they both evaluate these figurines. The idea is that if we can use these statues to understand how their body structure might have differed from the average, we can tease out some possible interpretations. So the first article is one titled Obesity in the Paleolithic Era by Laszlo Yosha. Quote, photos and or copies of 100 Upper Paleolithic statues. And just as a reminder, the Upper Paleolithic was from around 45,000 to 10,000 BP or before present. Copies of 100 Upper Paleolithic statues were studied. The photos having been taken from the frontal, lateral and back views. And so the study authors expanded the proportions of these statues to match the scale of a full size human. Because remember, these figurines are usually pretty small, a few inches long, and then compared measurements of key body parts to get a sense of the relative proportions and estimated body weight and mass of the individual. So it's like that study that showed what Barbie would be like if she was a real size human <laughs> yeah. person. And it's it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's really Cronenberg-esque. Um, yeah. Yeah. So among the 97 female idols studied, 24 were classified as skinny, and they were mainly interpreted as young women. 15 were of normal weight, while more than half of them, 51, represented overweight or very obese females whose breasts were also extremely large. The figurine analysis revealed various types of obesity. Increased fat tissue deposition can be seen in the following body parts. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to tell you which one went where in each figurine, but in general, there were sort of curvier aspects to the belly, the hips, the gluteal region, and in uh, a few cases, the femoral region or the thighs. Steatopygia, derived from the Greek steato, meaning fat, and pigia, meaning buttocks, and describing excessive fat of the buttocks, was observable in seven idols, although these females were not particularly overweight and had a reasonably thin waist and legs. Only seven statues were in the state of advanced gravidity or pregnancy. Gravidity sounds so threatening.
2: Yeah. It seems like something that, like, HR would reference. <laughs> like, Increased my, gravidity. my, like, my, yeah, my, like, my colleague who's on extended disability. Gravidity leave. Yeah, she's, she's on extended temporary disability. I, I think she should call it gravidity leave. <laughs> the
1: presence of such a small number of gravidity statuettes <laughs> challenges the general view concerning Vetus idols, namely that they all represent female fertility. That's it. I really, I included that just for that last line, because we had been when we talked about Venus figurines, we had been talking about this perception of Venus, the, the goddess of love, eroticism and sort of fertility, by extension, and how that doesn't necessarily correlate with womanhood, first of all, but also, there's not necessarily a reason to suggest that these are fertility figurines, because, and this demonstrates that because several of them show signs of pregnancy but not you know a really small percentage Mm -hmm. just a handful um so next a quote from what i like to think of as the sequel it's not really it's not even related not by the same authors but it sounds like it because this one's called obesity in the neolithic (laughs) Um, and it describes just one figurine a particular clay figurine from thessaly This one's much more qualitative, evaluating the physical characteristics of the figurine. And then, as far as I can tell, just kind of speculating about the rest. So this is Obesity in the Neolithic Era, a Greek female figurine uh, by Helen christopoulou aletra and Nikki Papavramidou.
2: Um, And don't forget Dr. I'm sorry,
1: Dr. Paolo Pozzili. Yes. He's a doctor. I think
2: they're all doctors. Well, he's a medical doctor. Yeah, he's a medical doctor. Also, before you get to this quote... Listeners who know me and Anna from school, from the way Hello. back, um, there was a professor that we had that would give like really, really, really brutal comments on like your work, so mean. on you, <laughs> just <laughs> on your like aptitude. And this feels like something that that professor would have to say.
1: There was just no filter between the extremely judgmental thoughts and what came out of either the mouth or the pen.
2: Oh, and so that's yeah. that's who that's whose voice. If you're <laughs> listening to this and you know who that person is, imagine this person saying that. Yep. And you're just 19 and you just worked really hard on this clay figurine and you're so tired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's the end of the semester. <laughs> almost Thanksgiving okay well here's this quote (laughs) the Neolithic figurines of Thessaly cannot be characterized as decorative they are ugly badly shaped and sometimes gargoyle they are not the products of people who have solved their everyday problems they were made under the pressure of everyday struggle for survival end quote (laughs) so what was our professor describing um (laughs) To, to be clear, none of the people that we just listed as authors on this article is this professor. <laughs> let's not, it's not, no, no, let's not confuse anybody. Okay, so from the article The represented woman made of clay is seated with her legs folded and the ends of her arms resting on her knees. The head is totally natural and its size has no exaggeration at all. Cool. The neck is strong, long, and large. Love a large neck. The hair is organized in grace and falls on the neck. Only the nose is enlarged, triangular, beak-shaped, and consequently unnatural. Root. <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> However, it resembles the kind of noses appearing in other figurines found in Tirnavos and Otsaki. Her shoulders are broad, rounded, and slope naturally into her plump upper arms. There are no signs of elbows or wrists, and only a few fingers can be distinguished. Hands are hard, though, you know? Speaking as someone who occasionally does art things, it's hard. The breasts located high on the chest, naturally separated, are small, comparable to the rest of the body. In the middle of the body, the waist narrows and the abdomen protrudes in a broad, gentle convexity. The navel is not indicated. A triangular engraving indicates the female sex without any specific elaboration. They don't get into it. They don't get into it. Nope. (laughs) There's no, um, coda. There's no label. (laughs) The legs are long, full, nearly round in section, and they lack clear signs of articulation at the knees. The size of the thighs is almost the same as the upper body. The ankles are not evident, and one can detect only a few toes on the feet. So, okay, so so this artist just didn't do fingers and toes, so... (laughs) These characteristics probably have their roots in the folk ideas on health. A healthy woman is always fleshy under the waist and rarely has problems during childbirth with her pelvis. In addition, the stoutness of the female figure is inherited from the shape of the Paleolithic figurine pottery. The unnaturally large buttocks and thighs are detected in the characteristics of the Paleolithic Venus, without, however, being present in the characteristics of the Gravedian or the Magdalenian period, which was roughly around 20,000 years ago was the, the Magdalenian and the Gravedian came before that.
2: So there's that. So there's that. So I guess, um, so what, what you're saying is that over the course of about 20,000 years, ideas evolve? So it would seem. <laughs> huh. <laughs> um, and now let's bring this train into the station at Terrible story Town.
1: Toot toot.
2: Yeah. Uh, with the story of Sarah or Sarcha Bartman. And so just if that name doesn't ring any bells for you, I just we just want folks to know that this story describes not only the exploitation and mistreatment of a human being during her lifetime, but it also describes the medical preservation and display of her body after her death um, and during her life uh, without her consent, um, which May very well be upsetting to listen to, so if you want to skip forward, yeah. uh, the ad
1: break is going to come right yeah. after this. So, so if you go wanna, until you hear the ad, and, and, uh, just j- and skip this we'll bit.
2: Just jump back in at the end, um, and that's fine. We get it. <laughs> we get it. This this is this largely comes from an article in the BBC magazine, but we'll include more information about her yeah. in the show. There's notes. a lot of there's a lot of really good work yeah. that um, owes itself to. Um, Sarah Bartman's experience. Uh, Bartman's life was one of huge hardship. It is thought that she was born in South Africa's Eastern Cape in 1789. And her mother died when she was two. And her father, a cattle driver, died when she was an adolescent. She entered domestic service in Cape Town after a Dutch colonist murdered her partner. In October of 1810, although illiterate, Bartman allegedly signed a contract with English ship surgeon William Dunlop and mixed race entrepreneur Hendrik Caesar's, in whose household she worked, saying she would travel to England to take her to take part in shows. Um, the reason that was that Bartman, also known as Sarah or Sarchia, had what was called stereopia, which Anna mentioned a few minutes ago. Results in um, extremely protuberant buttocks due to a buildup of fat. This made her a cause of fascination, um, and I will also add, and fetishization uh, when she was exhibited at a venue in London's Piccadilly Circus after her arrival. Rachel Holmes, the author of The Hot and Top Venus, The Life and Death of Sarcha Bartman, which we'll include in the show notes, says, quote, You have to remember that at the time it was highly fashionable and desirable for women to have large bottoms, so lots of people envied what she had naturally without having to accentuate her figure. Which is a very charitable way (laughs) to describe what was happening. Um. On stage, she wore skin-tight, flesh-colored clothing, as well as beads and feathers, and smoked a pipe. Wealthy customers could pay for private demonstrations in their homes, with their guests allowed to touch her. Bartman's promoters nicknamed her the Hottentot Venus, with Hottentot, now seen as derogatory, then being used in Dutch to describe the Khoi Khoi and San, who together make up the peoples known as the Khoisan. There
1: is, a. I, I learned this from a professor here at UC Davis who works directly with the San. And um, Khoisan is seen by some of those people as derogatory and kind of a, as an unwanted term, I think because it has to do with some of them are hunters and gatherers and some of them are farmers. And I think Khoisan might refer to the farming population and then the hunters and gatherers. They don't like that. OK. And so they don't like that kind of smushed together.
2: Well, and that word. Which is, but it is it is
1: a word that's used like by some of the, those groups. OK. It's just. Um, yeah,
2: it's not it's, it's not universally applicable.
1: Yeah, to, exactly. To I just, in it's in not. There. OK. Great. Yeah. So it's not necessarily derogatory, but it's not perfect.
2: It's, it's not always appropriate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, The British Empire had abolished the slave trade in 1807, but not slavery itself. Even so, campaigners... (laughs) Just don't forget forget that. Even so, campaigners were appalled at Bartman's treatment in London. Her employers were prosecuted for holding Bartman against her will, but not convicted, with Bartman herself testifying in their favor. Bartman agreed to be studied and... painted. Okay. Bartman was studied and painted by a group of scientists and artists, but refused to appear fully naked before them, arguing that this was beneath her dignity. She had never done this in one of her shows. This period was the beginning of the study of what became known as racial science. Yep, it's back. It's back. Sarah Bartman died at the age of 26. The cause was described as, quote, inflammatory and eruptive disease, end quote. Which sounds... Awful. Sounds really awful. Yeah. It's, it's since been suggested that this was the result of pneumonia, of syphilis, or perhaps alcoholism. Maybe some of all three. Yeah. Yeah. Which those three things really speak to her treatment, having a, te- a really oh, terrible life and like being treated, like being subjected to like absolutely inhuman conditions.
1: And there were things that I left out of this. Um, yeah. The story is.
2: Even worse than this. It's really but, bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the naturalist, uh, Georges Cuvier, made a plaster cast of her body before dissecting it. Um, this was
1: not, you know, obviously not with her consent.
2: Yeah. Um, he preserved her skeleton and pickled her brain and genitals, placing them in jars displayed at Paris's Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Man. Um, uh, And they they remained on public display until 1974. 1974. Which? 1974. I wouldn't have been surprised to see a more recent number there, but... 1974 too is, is way too recent. Um several books have been published about her treatment and her cultural significance. The 2010 film Black Venus and the 1998 documentary The Life and Times of Sarah Bartman have covered her story. Even for those outside South Africa who are unaware of Bartman, they there have been subtle and not so subtle cultural references. So I don't yeah. Anna I don't know if you remember when the internet broke. In 2014? oh I sure do. So in twenty fourteen, um, the cover of Paper magazine, like Paper is like a, it's like a art magazine. It's just it's a magazine. Yeah. Um, so this is when Kim Kardashian um, broke the internet. That's this with it. her
1: butt with her
2: butt. Um and so the cover the paper magazine cover showed then reality television star Kim Kardashian um balancing a champagne glass like a coupe on her protruding bottom. So she was doing like a oh like face Oops. and so like the she was holding champagne bottle and it was the champagne was like was like cascading, was cascading up, up over, up her, over head. her and her high pony and like into the cup. The coupe um, some critics complained the image was reminiscent of contemporary drawings of Bartman. Um, I would say those critics nailed it, uh, because yeah, it's, it's pretty spot on. It's pretty spot on. And so there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a lot to get yep. into there.
1: Um,
2: I can't believe that it, it was not
1: even directly referencing Sarah Bartman. It's referencing well
2: this other thing. Yes. So the Kardashian photo, the, 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 The sort of excuse (laughs) that was given Uh, was that uh, the Kardashian uh, photo referenced a 1976 image by the same photographer, Jean-Paul Goude, which showed a black model, Carolina Beaumont, naked and in a similar pose. So it's sort of a... um A pathway to Kim Kardashian. It's
1: which. Oh, God. But the origins are in this this visual signal that comes from the sideshow posters that advertised Bartman's. um,
2: And so the original um, good portrait was taken in 1976, two years after Sarah Bartman's remains were taken off display to the public. Yep. So we'll we'll include um, we'll include more about this um, as well as further reading into the intersection of like fatness and blackness in terms of um, racist attitudes and sort of the 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 intersections of like harm and violence. So we'll include that in the show notes. But for now, let's take a break for an ad. Let's.
1: Okay, we're back and we're going to move to a different part of the world where we've recently spent some time, podcast time, not actual time, sadly. Uh, that's Polynesia. When we started thinking about doing this topic, the perception of body shape among Pacific Islander cultures was one of the first things that popped into my mind. I knew I'd seen and kind of consumed a lot of pop culture tropes of obesity or large body size being a desirable thing in these cultures. I didn't know why. But um, I, I did know that that seemed to be a thing. And so I knew I didn't know enough to make that kind of blanket statement. So I did some research and I'm very glad that I did because I would have sounded like a real jerkus. And we've got <laughs> enough of those already in this script. <laughs> we don't need to contribute to that. Poor diets and reduced exercise have become a major public health concern for the region, the Pacific Islands, as they are not only a cause of obesity, associated diseases are also rife, such as heart disease, stroke, and diabetes. Keep in mind that these are cultures who had a completely different lifestyle and diet before colonizers showed up, especially during and after World War II when American soldiers were stationed in the area. All of this preservative-laden, highly processed, calorie-dense food uh, was imported to the Pacific Islands and really altered the local diet. So Jonathan Shaw, associate director of Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute in Australia, says, quote, with Pacific Islanders, their frame is typically bigger but that still doesn't account for the obesity we see, End quote. Temo Wakanevalu, program officer with the WHO's Prevention of Non-Communicable Diseases Department, says, quote, up to 95% of the adult population of the Pacific Islands are overweight or obese in some countries. As a Fijian native, Wakanevalu has worked on the issue for over a decade and seen the epidemic evolve firsthand, aided by the cultural acceptance of bigger bodies as beautiful, and he goes on to say, quote, "In Polynesia, the perception of big is beautiful does exist, but big is beautiful, fat is not. That needs to get through. So this is coming from this th- the fact that um Pacific Islanders, Polynesians generally just have a slightly bigger body frame, or they tend to be larger people, but that's not the same thing as saying that they are necessarily uh, bound to be obese." So and it seems that genetics may play a significant role in the rapid increase in obesity among Pacific Islanders once their traditional ways of life started to change. So there's a study published in the journal Nature Genetics in twenty sixteen, and this is a write-up of that study from your friend and mine, Gizmodo. <laughs> it's it's gizmodo. How's
2: mm-hmm. that? Gizmodo.
1: <laughs> Quote By studying the genomes of more than 5,000 Samoans, researchers have uncovered a single gene that boosts a person's obesity risk by upwards of 40%. Remarkably, this gene, which appears in a quarter of all Samoans, may have arisen in the population as they colonized the South Pacific. As described in Nature Genetics, this thrifty genetic variant called (laughs) (laughs) Krebber, because gene snips never have... Names They just have smush, smushes of letters. So CREBRF is associated... It's, C- C- it's C-R-E-B-R-F. C-R-E-B-R-F. So no, it's C-R-E-B-R-F, which is pronounced CREBRF, <laughs> yes. It's definitely a sound I've made many times during quarantine. Just as like a, like, how you doing? Cr-berf. Anyway, this gene variant is associated with a 1.5% increase in body mass index, BMI. So whether or not that's actually... Meaningful? Yeah,
2: I mean, it's BMI. Yeah, it does. It does mean that it's associated with a a larger body, a a larger body. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, So, um, yeah. So, whether or not BMI is a valid measurement here, the fact is that it changes. Like the change is is what is um, significant here. For a person of average height weighing about one hundred and eighty pounds, this gene corresponds to an extra ten pounds, as noted by the researchers in their study. ProBIRF promotes more efficient storage of fat and features, quote, an effect size much larger than that of any other known common BMI risk variant, end quote. Working with colleagues from several universities, Stephen McGarvey from Brown University made the discovery while scanning the genomes of thousands of Samoans. This population has some of the highest obesity rates in the world, a fact that prompted the scientists to conduct a genetic investigation. Around a quarter of all Samoans involved in the study had the genetic variant, which was associated with 30-40% to increased odds of being obese compared to those who don't have the gene. At the same time, this gene is virtually non-existent in European and African populations and occurs at very low frequencies among East Asians. So McGarvey, the the PI on this study, noted in a press statement, quote, although we have found a genetic variant with a reasonable biological mechanism, this genetic variant is just one part of the many reasons for the high levels of BMI and obesity among Samoans, end quote. Other factors include diet and physical activity. Indeed, The globe's shift to calorie-rich processed foods and more sedentary lifestyles has contributed significantly to the elevated rates of obesity among Samoans. But as this new study points out, their genetics are also working against them. So something that contributed to their ability to travel across these vast distances Mm -hmm. and get to these islands and, and colonize them and sort of survive that process, that was helpful. But now much of that way of life has shifted to a situation where that gene is actually a disadvantage.
2: Well, and this also echoes um, some points that came up on our episode about food sovereignty and like indigenous food ways and that Mm -hmm. there is um, action being taken and sort of folks are mobilizing towards looking to indigenous knowledge as a, as a means to sort of, heal bodies and populations Mm -hmm. and and that like this is you know the arrival of colonizers and then also like the effect on like local economies and local like food supply chains uh, resulting in like a lot of places that there's a lot of spam and like a lot of like hot dogs and a lot of things that like came with the US military. Um yeah. And and that's something that is particularly unhealthy for these communities. And whereas the the diet, like a more traditional yeah. diet, is one that would be it's sort possible. of like the body hasn't caught up in its evolution to this is a really kind of clunky
1: metaphor, but like the body hasn't caught up in its evolution to adapt to those food sources. Yeah. Right. So it's like there's a lag between a body that is Ideally adapted to a particular set of food ways and a particular set of daily activities. But then the food, you know, the, the way of life shifted too fast. And so the, there's the, hasn't been time for the, the bodies to catch up. And so the, the result is, you know, a, a downfall in health. Yeah. Um, and actually it was totally not an ad. This is not in any way. We're not benefiting this from this in any way, but, um, there's a series on Hulu called Taste the Nation. Amber, when you brought up sort of food as medicine Mm -hmm. in indigenous communities, this is really what reminded me of that. So Taste the Nation, it's a a show with, I think, six or nine episodes. It's hosted by Padma Lakshmi, who is great. And the show does a really, really great job of looking at some of the, the immigrant cuisines that have sort of Asking the question, what is American food? But then looking at the ways that, um, immigrant communities have shaped what that means to people. And there is an episode focusing on indigenous American foods. And it's very much, fo- it, it very much talks about a return to food as medicine and, and talking about the impact of, you know, the removal of Native Americans from their territories and, you know, movement to reservations and, one of the effects besides decimating these populations, one of the effects that this had was that staples of the American military at the time were given to these people in the reservation camps as rations. So sometimes, for example, people think of fry bread as a Native American food. It's not. It is made from flour and, and fried in oil. Those are army rations. Mm-hmm. They didn't use what wheat flour. That was not part of their sort of indigenous Food so it t- it talks about a real return by by some groups. Um I think it specifically talks about uh, Navajo and um some other local like southwestern mm-hmm. tribes and and it's a really, really, really good introduction to to these ideas. So I yeah. recommend that it's I recommend the whole show. It's great, but that particular episode really really gets you.
2: Oh, thanks for sharing that yeah, okay well let's that's let's head back to the continent of Africa this time. The uh, the northeastern part, uh, and we're you know, taking me on a journey, Amber. We, we're
1: heading to such, p- We're heading to punt. We already used the punted over to you joke in the
2: African Empires oh, episode. Yeah. So like the last time we talked about punt. Um, yeah. So we know we know it's been a long time. We've been here a while, but back in our African Empire series, we talked. That was fifty episodes I know, ago. I know. It was half a lifetime of this show ago. We talked about punt. So we're going to talk about the Queen Etty of punt again. Um, And just as a reminder, uh, we know about punt and and especially about Etty through um the the annals of Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was the, the lady pharaoh. She wasn't a queen. She wasn't a queen. She was she was a pharaoh. So she was a she was a, a woman who became pharaoh. And she ruled in the, the male role of yeah, Pharaoh. Yeah Pharaoh is a a male designation. And so in her capacity as pharaoh, male pronouns, she wore a little beard and like she did all the things that Pharaoh do. <laughs> so in year nine of Hatshepsut's reign, she sent in an expedition to Punt. Um, and again, nobody knows exactly where Punt was, but there's plenty of speculation. Um, and we talked about that specifically in our African Empires episodes. But we- now you can you can hear about baboon forensics. Yes, you can. Oh yeah, that's what we, we talked about that there. But the idea is that it's sort of, South ish of Egypt. Of Egypt, yeah. Somewhere along the coast. Yeah. So, like, somewhere on the coast of the Red Sea, perhaps. Eh. So, a report of that five ship voyage survives on the reliefs of Hatshepsut Mortuary Temple at the site of Deir al Bahre, which is a very cool site. Oh, it's so beautiful. Throughout the temple texts, Hatshepsut envoy, Chancellor Nesi, um, who is mentioned as the head of the expedition, had traveled to Punt, quote, in order to exact tribute from the natives, end quote. The, the age old uh-huh. reason to go somewhere, to demand uh-huh. the people who live there give you something, give me stuff, who admit their allegiance to the Egyptian pharaoh. So this is political spin. <laughs> Which is the thing that Egypt did, and someday we're going to so talk about we're going to talk about Egypt someday.
1: <laughs> yeah, can you believe it's been hundred episodes ish, and
2: uh, nary a nary an episode on Egypt, but we'll um, get there. Yeah, we sure will. And then up. after that episode, everyone will know why it took this long to get Amber to sit down and talk about Egypt. I got views. In reality, Nessie's expedition was a simple trading mission to a land punt which was by this time a well-established trading post and had traded with egypt for years yeah this wasn't like a new thing they weren't like breaking new ground this is it's like conquering it's like going to aldi it's a business trip and being like give me my tribute (laughs) as due." yeah and they're like ma'am this is an aldi (laughs) here's Here's your White Claw. It's not White Claw at all day. It's like a it's like an obs- oh, it's, it's an obscure ocean, German brand ocean mist. <laughs> uh, moreover, Nacy's visit to Punt was not inordinately brave since he was, quote, accompanied by at least five shiploads of Egyptian Marines, end quote, and greeted warmly by the chief of Punt and his immediate family. So he's so basically Nacy shows up and he's like, I'm here to extract tribute from the natives. And then there's like Mrs. Chief of Punt. It's like, Nacy, Nacy, is that you? Oh, my God. <laughs> Come in. I have <laughs> snacks. The, the Puntites, quote, traded not only their own produce of incense, ebony, and short-horned cattle, but also in goods from other African states, including gold, ivory, and animal skins. End quote. Um, and this comes from a presentation called "Unhottentotting the Queen of Punt. Fair enough. And so, according to the Temple Reliefs, the land of Punt was ruled at that time by King Parahu and Queen Ati. Queen Ati, or Eti, is, just, <laughs> is depicted on one of the bas-reliefs, Made by sheep that line the walls of tomb. <laughs> <laughs> ba Relief,
1: a sheep ointment. <laughs> Are your sheep sore? Try Ba Relief. So,
2: like bas Relief feels like the the level of like deep conditioning agent that I need for my hair. Like after I dye it, Ba Relief formulated for you. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. And so these Ba Reliefs line the walls of Hatshepsut's tomb. Um. She has a unique. <clears throat> She has a unique physical appearance that people have been trying to parse for a long, long time. Long enough, in fact, that there is a queen of punt syndrome that is maybe just as mysterious as Etsy herself. Anna is a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. Please don't ask me to treat you. I'll treat you nicely. Although that is like my favorite thing to do. That's like my favorite recurring joke is to like send Anna a photo of something terrible, like with my body. I'd be like, what is it? (laughs) I mean,
1: chances I also have enough, like, sore body parts and whatever that I could probably give you advice,
2: but go see a doctor, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Then again, medical doctors don't know either. Here's a quote from the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases. Light reading Queen of Punt Syndrome, clinically described as a rugged face, gluteofemoral obesity, hyperlordosis, And symmetrical deposits of fat on the trunk, limbs, and thighs seems to be a more unifying explanation for the graphic representation of the queen. That feels like a tautology. Yeah, the queen looks like she does because that's what the queen looks like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This syndrome appears to be a single phenotype grouping several dermatological pathologies, including Lanois-Bensoud, Lipomatosis, Lanois-Bensoud, Lipomatosis, dirk Lipomatosis, disease, neurofibromatosis, congenital sure. lipodystrophy, achondroplasia, familial obesity, Proteus syndrome, and X-linked dominant hypophosphatemic, hypophosphatemic rickets. Clearly, in the absence of any genetic or bioanthropological evidence of a mummy, the clinical diagnosis that should be ascribed to the queen of Punt still remains elusive after 34 centuries. So we didn't know then, and don't we don't know, don't know now. Know how. We don't know now. Was this a case of of realism in portraiture in in egyptian art realism maybe maybe. Mm. the the way the way the answers to all of this is just going to be the the, well the way that um contemporary to this time egyptian art like egyptian portraiture and and art sort of accessed realism it's it's not if you're thinking of like real like realistic bas reliefs like you might be thinking of something more like what you would see in like a classical context yeah this is a bit more stylized and so yeah so art is very stylized and so are we sort of breaking the fourth wall and being like no really this is what this lady looked like um was this stylized otherness because like
1: these people are different from our people
2: and And look how different and specifically they're they're woman in a position of power is not like our woman in a position of power and so there's been um, there's been some like research some work published on the the possibility that this is establishing like alterity and sort of like a kind of like Hatshepsut is not this yeah and, and, and sort of establishing what Hatshepsut is by showing something that she very much is not um and so it's it's something that might say more about art historians and like Egyptologists (laughs) that that sort of tackled this question than it does about and that's not me like being shady like it might it it, it might say more about them than it does about contemporary artistic and and cultural mores of Hatshepsut's Egypt right I'm just chuckling at at the idea that we could (laughs)
1: <laughs> solve this solve this in, in any way
2: yeah yeah and it's no way to know and and so it's it's something that's very very interesting but also the fact that it is something that intrigues contemporary medical professionals also mm-hmm. of saying like queen of punt syndrome who knows mm. not me mm. not that
1: kind of doctor. All right. So far, we've seen a variety of viewpoints on body size. And we're going to finish up this episode by talking about an artist who is perhaps most famous for his paintings that celebrate larger bodies. And that's Peter Paul Rubens, or really, Sir Peter Paul Rubens. He's a sir. (laughs) He got knighted. By whom? I don't know. The Flemish king?
2: I don't think they have one.
1: Well, this was 1577. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So Rubens was born in 1577 and was a Flemish artist and diplomat. He had a lot of upper respiratory problems. It made him very Flemish. Oh, oh my god!
2: <laughs> well, have you seen have you seen those paintings? How damp it is! Like yeah, that very entire moist period paintings. of art is just like everything looks damp. Everything looks.
1: Has a sheen about it. It's very heavy. It's, there's a lot of heft to the fabrics. Go it just, check. It, go. Go. Google image search some Rubens paintings just, uh, while you listen to this part. A New York Times article published in 1977 on his 400th birthday discusses in slightly purple prose both his work and the historical context of that work. Now, normally, we like to keep our sources a bit more current than the 1970s if we can, but we'll make an exception here because it's something interesting to think about. Is our perspective on body shapes now in 2020 different from in 1977? And does that change the way we think about Rubin's art and, and having listened to the rest of this podcast, does that change how you're thinking about these paintings now? Uh, we're considering the gaze. No, oh, that was the pride episode. Ah, uh, this is the gaze. <laughs> <laughs> so from the New York Times. Rubin's greatness as an artist has remained unchallenged ever since the beginning of his career, but by the 1920s, Rubin's art had become increasingly hard to like. The rippling exuberance of his nudes seemed to reflect too arrogantly the fatness of his time and of his patrons, and perhaps even the unseemly fatness of his own lot, meaning that he was privileged. Rubin's art reflects the unique abundance of his endowment and his heritage, it combines all the sumptuous and harmonious accomplishments of Italian Renaissance art, which Rubens absorbed during early sojourns in Italy, with native Flemish gifts of nervous energy. What, what does that even mean? What does that mean? Feels, uh-huh.
2: it feels uh-huh.
1: insulting. Yeah. <sighs> he was twitchy. Graphic skill and a flair for expressive grotesquery. Again, feels insulting. The resulting rich confections ideally suited the appetites of his own age, but in modern times, these confections, epitomized by his active, fleshy nudes, have sometimes proved hard to digest. The 20th century has been trained in more stringent schools of visual economics. In the past 50 years, taste in physical beauty has shown a marked rejection of bodily opulence, or, to put it bluntly, fat. Why should this be so? The look of ideal bodies changes a great deal all the time, and so the perception of corporeal facts is edited to match. In ordinary life, a common vehicle of expression for this changing physical ideal is the changing fashion in clothes. Rubens' nude ladies are expertly conceived versions of the fashionable apparel of the day, which favored bunchy satin dresses arranged in thick but mobile folds, especially around the middle. In nude art, shiny satin skin over thick and mobile... She likes mobile folds, this author. Mobile folds of flesh produced a bodily perfectly tailored to the chic, erotic taste of the moment. Meanwhile, in real life, people who were thin wore lush, fluid, and bulky garments to suggest that they resembled a Rubens nude underneath. For about 400 years, roughly between 1500 and 1900, bodily weight and volume for both men and women... and again western european men and women (laughs) had a strong visual appeal there were variations according to country and century in the standard of good looks but in general it was considered not only beautiful but natural to look physically substantial in conventional art not only refined courtiers but servants and rural laborers were depicted as solidly fleshy clad in thick clothing and taking up a good deal of space among the desirable qualities of upper-class elegance, slimness did not figure except as the property of hands, feet, or noses, and occasionally the feminine waist all by itself, independent of other. Purpo- what like a floating torso?
2: What? Yeah, you, you don't find that you don't find that sexy? Little little waist, nothing else.
1: Love a ghost waist. A waist, <laughs> waste of space. <laughs> as for bones, they were totally banished from the idealized female nude. <laughs> Oh, she's got no bones. Damn, that less explaining the mobile folds. <laughs> Was he just painting gelatin? Rubens, reaching maturity at the end of the 16th century, caught the taste for physical plumpness on the rise, so to speak, and gave it a whole new dimension. Abandoning the smooth terrain of the Renaissance nude, he conjured up a hilly and lustrous landscape of flesh, a new Baroque vision of fat. Did I say slightly purple prose in this article? I because this. my goodness. Yeah. I, I, and just, you know, this was the 1970s. Like there was, uh, it was about being thin. Oh, I thought I thought you were
2: talking about the standards at the New York Times.
1: <laughs> this was no, the no, 1970s. No, <laughs> Well, perhaps, but just overall in in America and Europe in the 1970s, being sort of thin and angular was very fashionable. So this person writing lyrically about mobile folds and yeah. the hills of flesh says more about her, I think. Towards the end of the 18th century, a period of revolution in both taste and politics, a certain underground admiration for thinness arose, stimulated by the literary beginnings of Romanticism. The first gothic fiction produced a character afflicted with a kind of fatal slimness. And it just coughed tubercularly. A male or female creature of compelling demonic villainy. This romantic figure, the Byronic Fatal Man, or the Femme Fatale, was endowed with hollow cheeks, a tall, wasted frame, and was full of
2: nervous energy.
1: I, What's with the nervous energy again?
2: I, too, have been thinking about Jarvis Cocker lately. So this... <laughs> Such morbid literary thinness was extreme and unorthodox,
1: but it eventually proved fashionable and attractive for its very morbidity, its erotic suggestions of forbidden practices and unholy preoccupations. All yeah. right, lady. Death. But the interest in morbidity was a side issue to the more important change in European taste at the end of the 18th century, the growing fascination with classical antiquity. So the sort of the pendulum kind of swings to... Is nubile the right word Oh, there? please don't use that word. You know, slimmer classical figures. Uh, so we'll leave it there with that with that series of mental images. But the whole archived article will be linked in the show notes if you Dare. want
2: more. Oh, so if this series of vignettes into different pasts and places has shown anything, it's that there isn't one single model of a healthy human body. As we've said many times before on the show, there is not a wrong way to be a human living in a human body. And so there's nothing wrong. (laughs) There's nothing. So there's nothing wrong with having a body, whether that body has more fat or less fat on it. It doesn't make the body any less valid or valuable or valuable. If that body is unhealthy, that body is not any less valid or valuable. No. Just maybe you need to hear that. Yeah. Your body means something. Yeah. Your your body is is not less than another body. No. Even if your body isn't serving you as as you wish, as you wish. Yeah. Like it's, it's doing the best it can. And that's pretty great considering You're it's doing great. It's gotten you here listening to us. And so nicely done. So with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. And we will be back in your ears next week with our 100th episode. Ah! Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you for getting us this
1: far. We can't wait to make the next 100. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. (laughs) Let's, Let's not get ahead of ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, And anywhere else you get your podcasts. And we're also on social media. You can find us there. On Facebook, we're just The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on
2: Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together on our website, along with merch and a link to sponsor an episode on the topic of your choice at TheDirtPod.com, which folks do. And we love.
1: And we've seen some pictures of our merch in the wild. Ah! And I just, I love it. We love it so much. We don't. I. I mean, I've, I don't know if anyone was laboring under this misconception, but we don't have a graphic design department or anything. It's it's Anna. It me. So, mm-hmm. seeing people buying and wearing the things I make brings me so much joy. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, for that. And speaking of joy, hey, you're gonna want to listen to our hundredth episode when it drops on Monday, July twenty seventh. 2020 because we will be announcing some very fun things up at the top of that episode so stay tuned uh, for that and
2: and listen to the rest of the episode because i'm really excited about this one and this oh is, it's gonna be a really this cool is, episode this too isn't, this yeah. isn't one of the like amber's gonna bomb everybody out it's not one of those i mean the day is young no this one's gonna be fun this one th- yeah this
1: one may actually
2: really be fun <laughs> <laughs> and i started doing research for spooktober last night oh spooktober's yeah, coming I got I got some I got some gnarly ones
1: Ugh, great <laughs> um well that's something to look forward to listeners and me I, I do like spooktober so thank you as always for listening and we will be with you again next week yeah we love you goodbye 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 <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.